say four-year-old? Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy or girl? Girl. Oh, I got three and a half. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm potty training right now. Oh. That's all That's all we talked about last episode. Whatever that last episode was that, like, kept being, it was like Tim Jenis. It was someone, it was someone, like, important, and that, that kept coming up. <laughs> We're going to not just sit here and make jokes about Casey himself potty training again. I know. Yeah, you guys have been, you guys have been real mature. <laughs> Well, hey, everybody, it's uh, the Ep Percussion Podcast. It's Casey Cangelosi. It's, uh, what is it? It's May 30th, 2021, but you might be listening on June 17th if you're listening on release date. Ben Charles is here. Hey, Ben, how's it going, buddy? Hey, Casey, how are you? Good, thanks. And also, Ksenia Kamyanovich is here. Hey, Ksenia. Hey, Casey, glad to know that I missed out on all of that potty training jokes, but I'll, I'll keep up. I'll try. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be an opportunity to, to tease somehow. Because then, you know, our guest has more K's in her name than you have silent K's in your name. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> I've been out K'd. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot of K's and her K's like sound where they should. <laughs> There's another one in my middle name, so just is there? hang on for that. <laughs> <laughs> trouble, trouble. Oh, okay. See, so there you go. And then Carly Vigna is also here. Hey, Carly. Yeah. Hey, Casey. How's it going? Good, good, good. What happened on the release date of June 17th today? Yeah. So actually, June 17th, 1882 is Stravinsky's birthday. And, you know, many of our listeners probably already know something about the riot at the premiere of the Rite of Spring in 1913. We all talk about that. And a lot of his major works were probably like, yeah, okay, we know those. And some of his biographical information. So I thought I'd share with you all some lesser known interesting facts about Stravinsky that I found. Um, a lot of these I found in a, a CMUSE article by Angelica Frey. So I should say that. Um, the first, first fact is that Stravinsky was actually the first original composer for Ballet Russe. Um, when he started working with Sergei Diaghilev, he was starting to arrange things like Chopin um, until he was commissioned to write the first original score, which was the Firebird in 1910. So that's pretty cool to think. You know, what a big deal. Um, so, of course, that was the first Ballet Russe with an original score. And we know some of his others, like Petrushka and Rite of Spring, of course. Um, second thing that I thought was really interesting, and I didn't know this, maybe some of you did, but Stravinsky was friends with and also collaborated with Pablo Picasso. So here I have this nice little portrait to share with you. They met, um, let's see, in 1917, Stravinsky and Picasso met and they started exchanging art and, you know, compositions. And this is a portrait, what you're seeing on the screen of Stravinsky by Pablo Picasso. So that's pretty cool. Not every 20th century composer has a portrait by Pablo Picasso. So there it is. If you're not checking this out on YouTube, um, maybe go and check it out or, or Google it. So there's that. Um, Stravinsky also wrote a piece for Picasso called Sketch for Music for the Clarinet. Um, in 1920, the two also got to collaborate with Diaghilev uh, on the ballet Pulcinella, and Picasso was the costume and set designer, and Stravinsky adapted the original score, adding like some more modern rhythms and Stravinsky-like harmonies, which is pretty cool. 
Um, and then the third interesting fact that I found was that the philosopher Theodore Adorno referred to Stravinsky's music as both schizophrenic and said that it portrayed psychotic traits. Um, so this is kind of interesting. And I thought like, maybe we've all had that thought while we're counting through, you know, the 11-4 bar in Rite of Spring or something like that. Um, so I thought that was interesting. More, more on Stravinsky than just, well, you know, he was born and he grew up and, and those things. Uh, yeah, I just had a couple other little Stravinsky tidbits. Have, have you guys heard uh, Stravinsky's arrangement of the national anthem? Actually, it's no. Really, I, yeah, it's it's bizarre, and there's there's some story. Don't quote me on this, but I think that it was like once it was performed, they said if you ever performed it again, we're going to throw you in jail or, or something like that. And also, Leonard Bernstein arranged Happy Birthday for Igor Stravinsky's 80th birthday. And so Bernstein did it in the style of Stravinsky. So it sounds like Stravinsky did it, even though Bernstein did it. So a couple maybe lesser known little Stravinsky things to check out. That's cool. Very cool. Well, geez, thanks so much, Carly. I was uh, I was just looking for, I swear there's a Rite of Spring album cover that is some Stravinsky and maybe that's, excuse me, some Picasso. Maybe that's maybe that's common, but I'm, I'm thinking of a very particular one. And um yeah, very, Are you talking very about cool. The one, the one of the girls kind of in the circle. Is that a Picasso? Uh, I don't think it is, but that is on display at the Museum of Modern Art. I remember I was there and I turned a corner and there it was. And I was like, oh, that's the that's the right of spring cover. Jenny, you're the artist in the room. Do you know? I don't know. <laughs> I'm self-taught too, so I didn't. Uh, I never took art history along the way. <laughs> it looks very along. I don't know. Yeah, it all looks in there. But anyway, yeah. Thanks so much, Carly. That's really, really awesome. Happy birthday, Igor Stravinsky. He certainly comes up on the show. Um, yeah, at least at least a couple of times, if not more. So, and that brings me to our guest you all today she's a genre blending marimbas and composer she founded what's called the mantra percussion group who in 2016 released their first full-length album of all original works by ensemble members and also our guest she studied marimba improvisation and composition in paris with the very famous eric samut who we got to get on the show somehow and she's also studied with a good friend of mine fernando meza who uh, yeah good friend and, and just mentor and uh, let's see, in 2019, she successfully funded her first Kickstarter campaign to fund uh, uh, al uh, her debut album on Marimba. And I definitely want to talk about uh, her album coming out very soon. And it's Jenny Klucken. Is it Klucken? Yep, Klucken. Mm -hmm. Just like that. Hey, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks. Good. I was going to add that my middle name is K K A Y, so I out I out K even beyond what you're saying. <laughs> Ksenia, how many K's are in your name? Like 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 five or six, right? In the spelling? Yeah, yeah, they're they're all K's actually. Just yeah, there's just a lot of K's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I see. Well, hey, you know, just to introduce Jenny, I thought I would show you all her little uh, album promo, and let's see, this is called Marimbista, right, Jenny? Mm-hmm. All right, let me share that real quick. Tell us, tell us about it. What the heck's going to happen here? When are we going to hear this? And what's oh, it going to yeah. be like? And how did it happen? And 
how do you talk to record producers and how do you record marimba and how do you pick album art and oh is that too much okay <laughs> tell us all of that uh yeah it, it has been a really really long road for this album project it was actually three years ago like this month that i composed most most of the music for it um but then um i can put a pin in that but so i uh October of 2019, I launched my Kickstarter. So that's, you know, a year and a half ago now. And, um, you know, we've had a lot happen in the last year and a half. So um, it's just been kind of one thing after another, not only with the pandemic making it really complicated to do literally anything. Um, but we, my, my family had kind of our own micro crisis. We had my father-in-law um, recently passed away from cancer. And so we were taking care of him and I was recording this record at the same time and there's job losses. And it's just been like, just kind of relentless, <laughs> relentless obstacles to get this made. So I'm really, really happy to share that it is releasing July 16th of this year, <laughs> almost two years after the, the whole thing started in the first place. Um, it's changed a lot along the way though. So um, two years ago, two years, yeah, two years ago, I went to Costa Rica with our mutual friend, Fernanda Mesa, who's originally from Costa Rica, but lives in Minneapolis now for a long time. And, um, he was going to be there doing this really great transcription project. And I had the opportunity to do some teaching there, um, just to offer some master classes and mostly just really wanted to go to Costa Rica. Um, and so I went there and I, and I kind of did this little exchange with some universities there. And then I went out um, to Guanacaste and got to see all these traditional marimbas and just insert myself right into their rehearsals and get to know them and just had this fabulous time, met some amazing musicians. And uh, during that trip, I decided well, what I really wanted on the album, as you could probably tell from that sample track, was that there's a lot of um, Latin drumming on the on the tracks, and uh, I just really, really wanted some fantastic drumming. And finding that in Minneapolis was possible, but I just got meeting these guys down there, and they were so fabulous. I thought, well, why don't I just come down here and record the album here um, instead of bringing them to me? And so that was the plan for a long time. And then um, my father-in-law's health dipped uh, right as I was about to leave. Um, and then, so I rescheduled it for March of 2020. So that did not happen because of the pandemic and um, finally decided, you know, who knows when I'm going to be able to do this. So I decided to record it here in Minneapolis. And, um, and now, now that it's all done, I'm really, really glad that it worked out this way. Um, I've been able to build a band here, really, really establish a lot of connections with just, just fantastic musicians in, in Minneapolis. And I also got um, this Costa Rican drummer that I really wanted to track in remotely. So I got the drums that I want. I got to get to know these fabulous pianists and bass players and string players from town that I'll continue to play with now. And then, you know, kind of got the best of all worlds. And it also took like 18 times longer to make than I had scheduled myself in Costa Rica for. So um, yeah, yeah, it's been a really, really long road. We've been mixing and um, I mentioned before, just working with a producer and uh, 
working, talking with record labels has been, um, just this whole new world that I don't really feel like I know much about, um, given my degree in percussion, classical percussion. Um, but it's just been this, I feel like I'm taking the class of life right now and figuring this all out as I go. So it's finally, finally done. I should have the CDs in my hand by the end of this week and we'll be releasing them in July. Cool. Wow. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah, congrats, Jenny. Uh, you had mentioned Fernando Mesa, who's a, a friend of the podcast, and I think everyone would agree, one of the nicest guys in, in the percussion field. Uh, I actually just <laughs> talked to Fernando on the phone for probably like an hour last week about some questions I was having. Um, but you mentioned uh, Costa Rica and Fernando, and I just wanted to mention that Beverly Johnston hosted a talk, and you can find the whole thing on YouTube um, with a few people, including my teacher, William Mersh, as well as Fernando Mesa. Uh, and it's all on YouTube. And Fernando gives this great lecture on uh, the marimba in Costa Rica. Uh, and your album is titled Marimbista. And I learned from that lecture actually that uh, in Costa Rica, uh, marimbista is the marimba performer and marimbero is the, the marimba maker, manufacturer. So there's some some fun vocabulary words for everyone. Uh, but Jenny, could you tell us about your, your relationship with Fernando, how, how you met and how it's uh, shaped you over the years? Yeah. Oh man. Fernando has, has influenced my life a lot. Um, um, so I, I grew up in a really tiny, really, really tiny town in Minnesota and really had no idea what I was doing when I auditioned for school. And I don't think I played very well that day. Um, but connected with Fernando and he has told me later that he just saw somebody who was just really, really hungry to get to work and, um, um, just really hungry to learn. And so I did, did my bachelor's degree with him and, um, over the years have just become dear friends with him. He was one of the, I mean, not only just saying yes to me as such a unexperienced young musician, but when I was first learning marimba, I was, you know, doing the Stevens grip game, practicing and practicing. And I just, was really struggling with it and really frustrated. And then, you know, I was like 19 at the time and I saw Nancy Zoltzman play and I was like, well, she plays a little bit differently. Can you show me how she plays? <laughs> and so he showed me traditional grip and I just instantly loved it. And, and he was really, really supportive of me changing grips, even though that wasn't really what he taught, but he could, he could sort of guide me through that as best as he could and encouraged me to go to Nancy's um, summer workshop to get, to do more learning on that. But I think that was another one of those like twists in the road where if I would have just fought so hard with that grip, would I be playing marimba today? You know, I, who knows what would have happened, but yeah. And then, and then his invitation to uh, Costa Rica, I mean, I got to know his family and I stayed with his brother and um, well, stayed with his whole family really. And yeah, he, and, and got he, just like it goes, it, our, our families have really overlapped. Um, now I, I consider him a very dear friend and mentor um, just has really encouraged me to kind of go into this unusual path with marimba which has been very cool well hey jenny you're in um good company with, with fellow traditional grip switchovers oh, <laughs> ben and i both switched over a little later um for for i think probably some similar reasons but yeah. um, i i wanted to go back for a minute to you mentioned working with on the album and working with record companies and you know promotion and all of that 
I'm wondering if you'd tell us what, what, maybe what do you wish you knew before you started the whole process? What would have been most helpful? Um, and what advice would you have for some of our younger listeners that might be, you know, thinking about these kinds of larger scale pro uh, projects? Well, I feel like um, a lot of those things are yet to be discovered too, because it's not, it's not totally done yet. And I'm still waiting to see if I made the right choice on a lot of things. But um, some of the advice I would, I would hand out to people is um, it's worth your money to pay for coaching on things that you're very lost on. Um, I hired a Kickstarter coach and I think that was a complete game changer for me. And um, not only was this coach like the total master at crowdfunding, but had released a bunch of albums themselves. And so was a really knowledgeable musician in a totally different field than mine. And so having, yeah, just, um, uh, and, you know, it's expensive to, it's expensive to have coaches and it's expensive to have a, you know, producer and all of that advice that you need so much, but it, it really, if you can find a way to make it where I think I, I, it has been really worth that money for me. Um, yeah, I was going to say we had Sean LaFrenz on a, a few months ago, and he said the best advice he ever got from his undergraduate teacher was, if you don't practice something, you'll never get good at it. And I think like seeking out advice goes the same. Like we all train so much in music, but business advice, how to build a website, things like that. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, go get help. And it's yeah. totally worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I recently like had paid somebody to build my website and there's all these things. Oh, here she is. See, I told you she'd come. <laughs> yeah, we can't yeah. edit that out. That's staying in. <laughs> she always comes in the meetings. Um, and she'll walk right here, won't she? She'll like yeah. walk right yeah. there. She'll, she'll probably just take a little nap right on my desk, actually, if yeah. I make the spot yeah. for her. <laughs> Every time, I knew it. Um, I don't even remember what I was saying. How did you even know there was such a thing as a Kickstarter um, guide teacher? Coach, uh, yeah, oh, coach. I, I I had played on somebody else's record. Now she's meowing. Um, I had played on somebody else's record, and they had done a Kickstarter campaign that was a couple Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul musicians um, had worked with this coach and had funded their album in like three days, like just crazy numbers. Um, and I I went into it really not having. Sorry, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself, but. Anyways, this this coach had worked with this musician that I had recorded with, and she recommended it so much as well. So um, I decided to do that. And the other nice thing is that you can, if you're doing a Kickstarter campaign, you can just write those coaching fees in your Kickstarter budget. So you you kind of never see the money, which is a very clever way to do it, um, which I wouldn't have thought of. Here we go. Here she goes. Okay. Um, this is Tilly. And she insists on being on the Zoom call. So we're all just going to have to deal with it. <laughs> For our audio-only listeners, Tilly is a cat. Oh, sorry. I forgot about that. You can probably hear the purring. Um, it's easier to just put her here than to fight it for the whole Zoom call. So um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that that was, um, uh, their name is Laser uh, Milena Weber. Milena Weber? I think so. Um, <laughs> Okay, girl. 
sorry, I might need to like take a second and kick her out of here. Um, but they wrote a book, Crowdfunding for Musicians, that is just a piece of gold for musicians trying to crowdfund a project. That's awesome. I was going to ask you kind of like dig in a little bit more, like what, what are the secrets that you got from them? But it sounds great. We'll, we'll check out their, their book for sure. Um, yeah. I think it's so easy to do Kickstarter poorly, you know? Oh yeah. And it's painful to watch it go down. I mean, yeah, it's, you put a lot out there when you do Kickstarter and, and it, it really just, it, it takes so much work to make. Well. My favorite Kickstarter. I've seen two like this, I think like pay me to write a book that I want to write. <laughs> like, yeah. I've seen two of those. It's like backers one. <laughs> you know, like, Mom. No, that was very, pain, very painful. Like, dude, wait, nobody's going to pay you to write a book that you want to write that rewards. I will think about you while I write my book. Oh yeah. What? Like, I, I, I mean, I'll give you the book i guess but like w wait what are you paying for i mean you're essentially asking everyone to pay you for your time so that you can write a book that you want to write this is really anyway the funny thing is like with the right marketing you could actually do that kickstarter i guess you know, so, not, yeah. not so different from an album yeah have I, mean, to be I, was, I haven't made this yet i want to make this album but but it's an album like somebody wants right like there probably aren't backers going like yeah sure i'll fund this album that i definitely don't want you know like they probably are interested in it being made whereas this the one i saw was like hey you've never heard of me but i'm writing a marimba <laughs> yeah. book and i you've you have no idea if i can play marimba at all but i'm writing a method book so and like well yeah dude that's a really terrible idea. <laughs> Anyway, well, first of all, thanks, Ben, for uh, showing us this example of Kickstarter project uh, called Buy Me Lunch. <laughs> yeah, just Google Kickstarter Buy Me Lunch, 150% goal met. <laughs> Humor goes a long way in these is what I've heard. Um, Jenny, I'd love to know uh, more about the album production process. So you've funded all of this on your own. And uh, the question is, at which point did you uh, start communicating with a label? Was it after the album was done? And what did they ask of you? What are some things that our young listeners can expect that labels will offer and want in return? And then secondly, um, do you have a marketing plan? Do you have a marketing coach? Any ideas there? Okay, I might have to come back for those those three points there. <laughs> um, I, I just I wanted to add when you said funding it yourself that um, Part of the interesting thing with funding this, my Kickstarter coach said, I don't think you have enough fans because I needed about $10,000 to make the album. And I didn't have, there's there's literally like a formula. Like if you have this number of fans, about 30% of them will give about this much. So you can raise this much money. Mm -hmm. And uh, based on what I had already, I could raise maybe $4,000. And that wasn't even gonna come close to what I wanted for the project. Um, but then my Kickstarter coach was like, you've got all this art, like, why don't you do some art drive, some commissions drive, you know, commission 10 paintings and it'll pay for the rest of it. And I, I honestly don't even know how many paintings were commissioned. I had such an outpouring of, of support. And like, if people want to do a Kickstarter, they'll give like $35, but like I had people buying like two, $300 paintings and, um, or commissioning certain colors. And, 
it was just this huge boom in my art career kind of at the same time. And it's sort of the first time I've um, crossed over my music and art. And now, now I always cross over my music and art because people come for one and kind of end up staying for the other. Um, so that, that was like a, a really big light bulb moment to combine these two art forms for me. And it ended up um, probably a little over $10,000 that I raised. And now the project has taken so long that I've been able to sell art along the way and make even more to spend on the project. Um, so your question was about, oh, here comes the dog. <laughs> it's lovely. It's a beautiful zoo. <laughs> There. Uh, <laughs> here comes my big golden retriever for the party. Wonderful. And here comes the giraffe. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was, was about the label. Yes, the record label. So um, I I was totally independent all the way, but it was once the, uh, the the album was done that I started talking with a couple smaller record labels. Um, and I actually ended up not just, I'm gonna release it independently. And I, I stewed over that decision for a really long time. Oh, that one's called Crescendo. He's just pulled up a painting of mine. I'll put um, some art in my background here for everybody. Very nice. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, 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 I went back and forth. I was on the phone with them a million times. Um, and I just was really honest, like, hey, I'm super new at this. I'm going to ask you some really stupid questions. And I'm not even sorry, because this is my baby. And I'm just, I'm, I just need to know everything. Um, and the one of the reasons I decided not to do it was um, I just really like the cross pollination of my two art forms is really valuable to me. And um, with most record labels, you have exclusive, exclusive digital distribution meaning I can't sell uh, any of my music on my own website. So that was like the number one thing that I, I just couldn't get past. Plus, um, you know, if you sell something on your website, you use PayPal, it takes some little percentage. And then if you have your record label taking another percentage, well, the, the price that they set was kind of lower than I was comfortable with anyways. Plus, Plus these cuts when I felt like I could just sell it myself for a couple dollars more and make, you know, only have the PayPal taken out. And when you multiply that by how, you know, 500 CDs, it's just, a, it's, it's a huge number in the end. Um, so that, that was really the number one thing there, there, there were, I, I also just didn't, I wasn't convinced that the platform was worth that price. Um, you know, if a very large record label came to me that I would, I would think about that very differently, but these were smaller, you know, I'm, I'm an emerging artist and I wouldn't expect, you know, none such to approach me right now, but if they did someday, that would be a totally different thing. But these smaller, these smaller record labels, I just, I wasn't convinced that they could do, uh, they could do things that I couldn't do if I really put my mind to them. Hmm. like marketing. Um, so that's what I'm doing right now. And I actually have been working with my Kickstarter coach again um, to try to manage all of that. But again, if you, if, 
if you pay a coach um, who's good, they can teach you how to do these things. And then you're not hiring it out or signed on with this record label to do it for you for the rest of your life, or you could spend the money now and get taught how to do these things. So right now it's like kind of reverse engineering, like, okay, who's an artist that I would say I am either like, or I would like to be like, okay, who wrote about them? Where's their website, track down their email, write to them and say, hey, you wrote about so-and-so, you should write about me. You know, like coming down from the artist first and then getting into different um, press. So that's that's kind of what I'm doing right now. And again, it's really overwhelming, but with a really great coach, I feel like I can kind of tackle it week by week. That's awesome. Um, without getting into too much detail, but how, how does this coach uh, coaching relationship work? So you meet them weekly and you pay them weekly and it hurts your grocery budget or not? <laughs> how does that work? Um, right now it's, uh, they have like um, classes you can take that are weekly check-ins and you get this to-do list. I've been working them with them for a while now. And so I can literally text them and be like, ah, what is this? And then they'll tell me to calm down and <laughs> text me the answer. But uh, now, right now it's like, I, I kind of try to do it until I get stuck. And then I just set up a phone call to get unstuck. Yeah, that makes sense. When you were picking record label, you know, there's nothing really out there exactly like yours. I mean, there's a lot of marimba recordings out there. There's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of groups, you know, there's a lot of uh, Latin percussion, including groups, but uh, nothing quite with this kind of blend or like marimba is kind of the centerpiece. And the band is, like you said, like good hand percussion, good Latin percussion. Um, I don't know. How did you, how did you know, okay, yeah, this label is going to be able to do what I, I want. I guess that might've been part of the consideration too, is um, mostly what I, what I'm trying, what I try to insert myself now and in, is into the jazz world. Cause I feel like that's like the, the biggest umbrella that works for me right now. Um, it feels easier for me to get in front of percussion audiences because that's the world I know and I don't have to explain it to a room full of uh, percussion professors or something um so I, I'm pushing less for um I I don't know if I'm using the right words but like I, I'm trying to make so the marimba always lives in this percussion world we all know what the marimba is and what it typically does but in my opinion, I think it, there, there's no reason why it can't be in these jazz venues playing super groovy, cool music that you can't get out of your head. I mean, not that there's percussion ensemble music that we can't get out of our head, but, you know, just trying to like put it in front of relaxed audiences with the bar and um, just fun, uh, really approachable music. Um, and so I'm trying to cross marimba over into into these worlds. Um, and I feel like I just kind of lost track of your original question as I was saying that, Casey. Oh, that's um, all right. I was kind of curious, like, um, I guess about picking a label, you know, pick, oh, or picking, yeah. a, picking a recording studio, you know, or, or picking a, a producer or an engineer, just since there hasn't been anything quite 
like this uh, done. Uh, it's not like the the engineer is like, hey, yeah, here's ten albums I've I've recorded that sound like the thing you want to do. Whereas in the punk rock industry, yeah, you can find like, okay, I'm gonna pick a hundred CDs from this record company, a hundred CDs from them, and they're all punk rock. They all have the same ensemble, and I'm gonna see what I like. It's it's uh, harder to do that with um, what you do. Yeah, yeah, it's um, so the 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 record labels I was talking to were were like contemporary jazz labels, um, and then and then I am doing a national radio campaign with Jazz Dog. So that's that's another bit of the marketing that I'm doing, but that is yeah that's that's um, again crossing over into the jazz world. Um, the producer that I worked with was like the perfect person for this job. Um, his name is Steve Yeager, and he is the coolest person I know. <laughs> I always tell him he's this jazz vibes guy who also works in production and is just he. He, he's an audio engineer and a producer and, you know, also has been in that classical percussion world. So like nobody, no, nobody, very, very few people exist in those two worlds and he was local. And so he's, he's been a huge, uh, a huge part of this coming together. But yeah, it is, I, I'm either like living in a moment where I'm like, yeah, my thing is so unique and cool. Nobody's got this. And then I'm like, nobody knows what this is and I can't convince anybody to care about this. <laughs> so it's, it's both great and challenging. Cool. Well, it's, yeah, it's, um, yeah, very impressive. It seems like it's off to a, a really good start for sure. And it's, I think that's a, always a good indicator that it's going to go cool places. Um, well, we definitely want to circle back around to your art. Um, I think that's, that's really, really uh, interesting and fascinating, but maybe we'll give Jenny a quick break uh, from talking. And Ksenia, you have uh, our topic for the week. What do you got? Yeah, so I have a cool topic that maybe Jenny would also find to be useful now that she's going to publish her album, because I'm going to talk about the dreaded NFTs. <laughs> So I found this um, wonderful article. Carly says I felt like I was reading sci-fi. Yeah, it, it was a little bit like that. I found this uh, article in uh, the Dallas News uh, with the title, Dallas Choir Verdigree Ensemble Turns Unique Digital Music Piece into a $375,000 NFT windfall at auction. So if you think classical musicians can't make a lot of money, well, you're wrong. And this is supposedly the first time that something like this happened with classical music. So it's super exciting. So I'll, I'll, I'll walk everyone down because we're all a little bit confused about this. And I am too. I did a lot of reading and I, I really hope that I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm going to do this right. So what is an NFT? What does it stand for? Uh, it stands for non-fungible token. You might have heard of Grimes or Beeple, uh, the artists who have made millions of dollars selling their stuff. Non-fungible means that more or less it's unique and cannot be replaced with something else. So for example, Bitcoin is fungible because you trade one Bitcoin for another Bitcoin and you get the exactly same thing. Uh, one of a kind trading card, however, is non-fungible, right? The Mona Lisa is non-fungible. Um, if you traded it for a different painting, um, it, it wouldn't be the same thing. It's still a painting, but it's not the same thing, right? So NFTs are part of Ethereum blockchain. 
Uh, Ethereum is a cryptocurrency, just like Bitcoin or Dogecoin, if you heard about it. Candela said this is no fun to talk about. <laughs> NFT, no fun to talk about. <laughs> I'm just way lost. So, but you're okay. doing good. Thank you. Thanks for I'm breaking trying, it down. I'm That's trying. what I need. This is a little intro. So what are NFTs? Basically, this is anything that you can sell digitally. You could sell your tweets. The founder of Twitter sold his first tweet for less than $3 million. William Shatner sold an x-ray of his teeth. You could buy an article from the New York Times, as long as they're willing to sell, right? Nobody can stop you from selling anything that could be owned in digital, in digital form, right? And, and real quick, how is that different from like anything else? Like, cause, or is it? It's not, no. just anything digital. It's, it's anything digital, right? Because okay. so far in art, we've been um, accustomed to the practice of purchasing things that you can actually physically own. So you can purchase a Monet painting or you can purchase uh, an album, which, I mean, if you buy a Rolling Stone album, you're probably right. going to buy something that's been printed a million times for so, other. So is Jenny's album on MP3 and NFT? <laughs> if she wants to sell it as such, it can be. And I'll explain why. Oh, my God. So, okay. You could do all of this on your own. And in fact, it's gotten so big that even Christie's, um, which is, I mean, a huge uh, seller of, of artwork, right? Um, sold Beeple's NFT just this year for $69 million. That's more than what a Monet painting was sold for in 2014. So huge, huge, huge. What does the auction winner get? So if you want to buy an NFT, what do you get? You don't get much. <laughs> you get a digital file, plus some vague rights about how you can present this artwork that you own. The important stuff is you get bragging rights. So there were smart people, you know, who were in there and they're like, well, what the hell, you know, there's this thing that someone bought Beeple's video for $6 million and then you can download it. It's on YouTube. You can watch it. It, it doesn't, it's not only this person that has the viewing rights to it, right? But it's the same as having a Van Gogh. You can either have a Van Gogh or you can go and buy a print of it. It's about bragging rights. The print can be veritable or, or not so much, but it's about bragging rights mostly, right? What is interesting about this? Uh, they're designed and they cannot be copied. O ownership is strict. So just like everything else with cryptocurrency, it uh, actually uh, records who are the previous owners and who is the creator. So it is very difficult to forge. And another thing which is really important for artists, check this out. The stuff can be resold, yeah? Just like anything in the art world. You buy a painting for $500 and then it turns out to be something really important and you sell it for 5 million later. You can do that here too. But most companies allow the artists to take a cut from every sale. So it is in the artist's interest for their art to be resold every time for a hundred times more, yeah? It's usually something like 10%, which, okay, we all have a problem with that. I, ha I have a problem with that, <laughs> that the artist only gets 10% of the resales. But if you sell for 69 million, you know, not bad. Sam Brockman, who is the head of business development at Async Art, which is this place that sells uh, music digitally, like NFTs. And he's the director of Vertigree Ensemble. This is a cha chamber ensemble um, that collaborates with other artists and does stuff with like dance and da da da, you know, they are 21st century. He uh, explained how this works. So basically, what this is, and somebody bought their piece called Betty's Notebook, it is programmable art. It is artwork that can change over time. And it does so in two different ways. 
One way is through multiple ownerships or through autonomous features, meaning time of day, statistical data, you know, geographic location, things that you can't influence. So like some sort of randomness. So this artwork changes over time. And if we were to make a parallel to the Mona Lisa, imagine if you could sell it in three parts. You could sell her eye color to someone, clothes to another person and background to another person. So the person who owns the eye color part of the painting can change it to red, blue, whatever they want on a given day. The person who owns the clothes can put her in a sweatshirt, a bathing suit, whatever they like. And the person with the background can put her on the moon or indoors or in a gallery or whatever. Yeah. So in a way, what is cool about this, what they say is a great selling point is that the person who owns the artwork can interact with it. And so with the way that they've sold Betty's notebook is, um, so this is a choral piece about a teenager who heard what uh, sounded like distress calls from Amelia Earhart in 1937, launched on their platform, right? And then they sold it uh, a few weeks ago. But basically you could buy four stems and the master recording. So you could buy the choir, which represents Amelia Earhart's voice on the radio transmission. You could buy Betty's voice, which is a documentary style narration of what was happening in the moment from this person who documented what she heard. You could buy Betty's choir, um, a choir of overtone pitches taken from a spectral analysis of her talking voice and Betty's radio, which is the interference that obscures the distress call. So sometimes these five jazz tunes that were redone come in to obscure the thing. It's a 21 minute work, I believe. And um, there are two owners, one owner bought three of the tracks and the master and another one bought one of the tracks. So these people made $375,000, a little bit over. Um, each of these had a different price. One was bought for 20,000. One was bought for 200,000. Depends on whatever you want to do. You bid, you as the artist get to set the, the price, you get to do whatever you want. And from what I saw, I think the ensemble receives a little bit less than 25% of the auction proceeds. And that, my friends, is how something in classical music got first sold as an NFT. Shoot your questions, I'll so, all right, all right. So, <laughs> so this is kind of cool because I think about like you know every current documentary about modern art and like all these elite like the pretentia just like buys and trades art at like crazy astronomical huge prices, and you know these people don't a lot of them don't get art you know they're just it's like you said it's bragging rights and it's an investment and they're just looking to maybe sell it again later and it seems like music maybe like you go back in music history maybe music was once that way people bragged about having their composer in residence or like Mozart is at the Esterhazy fan, wait, right? Or is that Haydn? I forget. Like, like, you know, oh, my composer is this person. They, they wrote this piece for my kid's wedding or whatever. Like they, those people may not have known a ton about music, but they bragged a lot and they paid these composers or at least took care of them really well. So like, if I'm getting this right, maybe, oh, thanks Carly, Haydn for you all. Yeah. So like, maybe this is, it's like possible now that we've brought status back into it because i'm just amazed it's like wait i get my itunes like you know royalty statement and it's you know it's just it's like oh i get ten dollars every four months or you know it's just laughable like and, and i mean there are people doing far far better than i am and it's also laughable you know i mean it's just if it's that hard to sell actual tangible mp3s but hey now there's all of a sudden like status attached to it again maybe 
It's, uh, I mean, I feel like it's a double-edged sword, but I'd love to hear what everyone else. I mean, it could be, it could be overall good for us, I, I would think. Like, I mean, that, it, you know, it, it seems like it's like, hey, big, big money is going back into single works of music, like the way they, they go into single works of art. Hey, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe that could, could only be good for uh, the, the lucky few, you know? Yeah, I, I know what you mean, Casey, about like rich people buying works of art. And I, I think that I, I, Ksenia would probably be able to correct me on this. Like, I think that there's some sort of weird stuff about taxes with like, if you buy that, then you sell it like it's it's taxed less or something. I think there's there's something to that. Like if you were going to buy a famous painting by Matisse and put it on the cover of Rite of Spring. Uh, that's my little way of working that fact in from earlier. Nice job. <laughs> but, <laughs> nice. But uh, but Ksenia, I was going to ask, have you heard anything about the environmental impact of uh, NFTs? Because I know, and Ksenia did a, a topic a while back on how like uh, MP3 music might be worse for the environment than vinyl records. And I know, and I'm not smart enough to understand all this, but I know that there has been quite a bit of controversy about how bad NFTs are for the environment and this whole idea of blockchain. Um, and I know, for example, Jacob Collier was going to sell one of his like logic sessions as uh, as an nft and actually decided not to uh, because of the environmental impact so i don't know if ksenia if you know anything about that but that's what i've heard on the streets <laughs> ben the digital, the streets. Streets. <laughs> digital streets <laughs> no that's that's true um because just like uh other just like blockchain nfts are powered by inefficient computer processes that are designed to validate data so um, ethereum however even though it's much more efficient than bitcoin um, even its creator has called the system uh, a huge waste of resources and so there have been artists that have decided not to sell nfts or to cancel drops after hearing about the effects that they have on climate change. However, um, some have uh, de devoted the money that they make all to offsetting their carbon footprint, which should eventually lead them to a good place. But I, I think that that's a little bit of a little bit funny and a little bit ironic because all these folks who who do uh, cryptocurrency, they believe in decentralization and very utopian and kind and noble and da, da, da. but yet ha it costs you know so yeah um, i don't i i don't get like i mean i don't get cryptocurrency for one thing because it all eventually turns into real currency right like you buy bitcoins with real money to trade them later to get real money right but they can go up or down in value right just like you would invest in stock like okay yeah, i'm yeah. gonna invest in one bitcoin of stock and i might go down it might go up and then i'll sell it later for a different value right yeah, that's true but there is a uh, the whole point is decentralization and um getting rid of banks and economic like, it's just re it's, re it's re centralizing it though like it's like it's like okay we're gonna put the hand take it from the hands of one thing and and just shift hands around and, and it's still money like it'd be one thing if it wasn't money it's like wait it's still going into banks eventually that all goes to banks you know because you can say the same thing about the stock market like oh i'm taking it away from the bank and putting it into the stock market, but it's all still attached to banks. I don't get it. Well, uh, I'm no, I I'm no expert, yeah. but um, there is a huge thing about that is the fact that it's a decentralized system. And for that, we can invite some specialists. Uh, but Jenny, are you going to sell your album? As an NFT? What about <laughs> or that? your art or your art? Yeah. yeah. Um, that is a world I have that that is a tunnel I have not dived down. Sounds um, like there's money in that tunnel. I mean, to me, it sounds like 
people are making money for the thing they made. And yeah. I'm like hyper uh, simplifying that, but it's hard to be mad about artists getting paid <laughs> in any way. <laughs> um, I, so no, <laughs> the farthest I've got is having prints made this year. So <laughs> um, that is a world I have not entered yet, no. <laughs> I, I thought it might be helpful real quick, just NFT, non-fungible token. Here's the definition. A non-fungible token is a unit of data stored on a digital ledger called a blockchain, which Ksenia said, that certifies a digital asset to be unique and therefore not interchangeable. NFTs can be used to represent items such as photos, videos, audio, and other types of digital files. So it's essentially a like, uh, like it's like a barcode for a digital something. It's like a identifier for something. So it's not like, so it's probably not very accurate to say like NFT itself causes bad carbon footprint, but like how it might be the art that the NFT is uh, labeling might. Yeah, I mean, how it's stored, what what needs to exist in order for this to to be stored and to be exchanged to be sold is what causes mm -hmm. the carbon. So footprint. so if I want to sell the podcast how how do i cert like how, how do i certify it as an where do i get my nft number for this episode uh, i'm not i'm not gonna tell you how i'm gonna get fired on air <laughs> just this episode actually i'm gonna sell your window to one person <laughs> jenny's window to someone else but right like i mean so like where do you get that like how do you how do you enter into I, where do i get my nft ledger so there are, there are many companies that you could go to, and one of them is uh, the one that, that sold this, which, I mean, what I think is really funny is that the director mm -hmm. of the choir, um, yeah. sorry? I, say, I just said, see, man, like, it's, everyone's like, oh, we're going to decentralize it and bring the system down. Like, no, you're just moving the system somewhere else. Like, this, if this gets big, it will be the new tyrant system. You know, like, it's frustrating, I think. I guess that's what i'm trying to wrap my head around it's like is there something about the nfts and cryptocurrency that is like democratizing financial concern like is this somehow like are, are people gonna have more access is is it more lucrative and like cutting out a middleman or is it just another system it's a great question i promise i've sat through many 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 lectures on this and i understood nothing but the people who <laughs> preach about this are really passionate about it and that's the whole thing it constantly keeps going back to it's decentralized because there is nobody that owns this there is no bitcoin director of bitcoin as far yeah. as i Sure. You know? sure. I get that. I get that. Like, right. Like you don't pay a fee to the Bitcoin bank when you make an exchange or whatever. Exactly. And you can, you can do that while traveling. Like it's, it's supposed to help you, you know, cut. But, it, but, it, but like, it's hard. It's hardly the fee that fidelity investment takes. That's keeping people without uh, with that's keeping people with less money from investing. It's just like, well, either you, like if you have a hundred thousand dollars to spare, yeah, you can make a lot. If you only have a hundred dollars to spare, even if you invest a hundred dollars really well, it can only go so far. So it's like if you have a hundred thousand dollars to invest in Bitcoin, yeah, you're going to do a lot better if it goes up than the person who only has a hundred dollars, right? Like, how is it any? I don't get it. 
Well, there are many cryptocurrencies that keep popping up. And recently, Dogecoin, for example, had a huge, huge, huge uh, rise in its value. But again, I am no expert. And I think Jenny and her cat have fallen asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the same. So, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I just, she's. I, oh. I only did the research on NFTs for today. I'm so sorry, Professor Cangelosi. I'll learn more about Bitcoin. <laughs> no. I, I, I went, I hope Caleb's listening because I went so long. Caleb and I went for so long arguing about like is what even Bitcoin is because he's into it and he seems to understand it. But he, I don't know, I, I couldn't get these questions like satisfied. I'm sorry. We'll bring Caleb. We'll replace me. I, I'll, I'll ask Caleb. He's probably has more information for me years later. Um, Let's talk about uh, Eric Samu. <laughs> or or Carly, anything on this, and we can move on. That's what that was my thing. Like I'm not oh, that sure was your thing. I understand the the point and still wrapping my head around that. Maybe we have Caleb on next week and <laughs> can explain it to us. Bonus episode. I I mean I really think we get it. I mean I think what I I think what I'm saying is is correct and it, it all does come down to actual real money in the end like it's not an actual new currency it's your money floating around and then you pull it back either as more or less depending on the value of the thing you invested in and that new thing is called cryptocurrency and it's crypto only because it's encrypted on the internet as like information just like real money is encrypted I and mean, we do the same thing it's like the money you have in your bank account isn't necessarily sitting there as actual paper or dollars you know i mean it's like as we know yeah like the federal reserve doesn't actually back all the money in gold anymore like we stopped doing that whenever um like like quite a long time ago which is why some people go around saying like no our money's actually not worth anything it's like if you had to trade in all your money for gold one day we'd all be broke or or whatever but so like because i don't get the the, the difference it's like it's only crypto and that yeah you don't have like a physical thing but it's like our money's already like that anyway jenny what the heck how did you get so good at making these awesome paintings and like this really cool one behind me and you have this really beautiful marimba improvisation while you're making one of these really cool artworks like how the heck did you uh, become so uh, well well at this um so i I, I didn't go to school for art, um, but I've always been in, been up to art. Um, obviously, I went to school for percussion, like I said before. And um, it was just a couple of years ago that I started uh, experimenting with this medium, like you see in the picture behind Casey. Um, this is done with acrylic paint. It's called acrylic pouring, where you, you blend the... <laughs> Um, you you blend the acrylic paint with there's a couple different things that you can even use with it. There you go. Very nice, Casey. <laughs> um, and it, you literally are pouring the paint and tipping the canvas. And it's gotten kind of popular as like a craft project. So if you go to Michael's, you can try it yourself too. Um, but I've been um, so I've been experimenting with that a lot. I also do watercolor paintings. Um, but the the my Kickstarter coach is the one that encouraged me to combine marimba improvisations with my painting videos. And um, while it's been a while since I posted one, um, I have a few of them on my Instagram and they've just gotten a really great response and, and people are just people seem to be really interested in the combination of art forms. So 
I also find that musicians are generally drawn towards this type of art, but maybe I just have a lot of musician friends. <laughs> I feel like we end up talking about art on the show a lot, just because I, I think we're all so naturally interested in parallels to what we do. You know, it's like whenever you can, I don't know, it's like, oh, there's a documentary on Bob Dylan on Netflix, or there's a documentary on dance competitions, you know, the ballet dance competitions, like I almost always go for the like parallel topic, you know, because like in a way it does relate so much to have like a little, a little buffer of indirectness right there. I, I was just going to ask how, how, how is this influenced how, how you play? Like, how is this influence how you compose and how you look at just music? The album project and discovering this medium kind of happened around the same time. And so when I am doing one or the other, I kind of feel like the other's always in my mind. Um, I really wish I could say that I had that thing that some people have where they they hear colors. I can't remember what it's called. Do you know what I'm talking about? Synesthesia. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, I've been asked many times if I have if I have that, and I feel like I could pretty easily pretend that I have it. <laughs> <laughs> or I could trick people in thinking I have it. I don't. Um, I, I, I spent most of my adult life being like, I am a musician and I play the marimba and that is who I am and that is what I do. And I used to do art all the time, but I don't really do that anymore because I'm too busy being a marimbist. Um, and then I got asked to paint this thing for somebody uh, at this church. They wanted a big, huge nativity scene. And I like dropped everything in my life. I couldn't, I could not, I could not leave it alone. I was so into it and I finished it and I was so proud of it. And I was like, why am I not doing this all the time? Like, I love painting so much. Why did I stop doing this? And so I started painting again, started doing this paint pouring and just several different mediums came along and have been experimenting. And it just, it, it really felt like like, you know, you exercise a muscle one way and it's going to get fatigued, but if you exercise it the other way, um, that was a really terrible sports analogy, but it, it, it just really, it, it really felt like this um, other, other side of my brain that kind of let the music side relax, but I could still go over here and be creative and I could take a break, but still be creative. So I just recently I turned my basement into this music and art studio so I literally can walk back and forth across the room I'll practice and then I'll like make sure something's drying okay and then I'll practice and um I feel like it's 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 really made me come into into my voice as an artist to be doing both of them together and I there's no paint splashes on my marimba yet so that's good that's that could be a business model also you could paint marimbas <laughs> I I'm so tempted to um paint the resonators but it's just a really expensive thing to paint <laughs> <laughs> can't quite get myself to do it sell it as an nft and then you can buy oh. 10 more <laughs> I have some cracked bars I should really I, I I should really do something with with paint yeah do something with that you know I I think Jenny I wanted to ask you it's easy for us as quote unquote classical musicians or classically trained musicians. I think sometimes we can get away from 
focusing on the creative side of what we do and start really focusing on technique and consistency and execution and all of those things are like really important. We have to have technique to be able to express. Um, but I guess it's it's really wonderful to hear about you kind of coming back to art and realizing that fulfills a creative part of, of you. Um, and I'm sure the two are just so, so related all the time. I saw on your website uh, that you offer a clinic on, you know, coming from being a non-improviser, which most classical musicians are, to learning how to improvise. And I wonder if you'd talk about that a little bit, what that experience is like, and if it's kind of opened up creativity that, you know, flows between your playing and your artwork and, and along those kinds of lines. Boy, I would love to do that clinic <laughs> again. It's been so long since I've uh, done it because of the pandemic. But yeah, I, I do a clinic for, you know, kind of any age of, I've done it for non-percussionists, but I prefer to do it for percussionists and just um, kind of getting at, getting at what improvisation can look like even as a beginner and an intermediate. I mean, <clears throat> like you said, uh, classical musicians, we just spend so much time on um, technique and precision and and other instruments too. But I just know the percussion so well, and I and I I know firsthand how hard we work on precision. And precision is fantastic. Um, but like being an artist is also about like breaking those rules and and just kind of seeing what's inside your head. So I love teaching improv uh, classes, and I and I. I like to take what people already know and just show them really fun and easy ways to try improvising. Um, I did not grow up improvising. I took jazz improv in college and was really terrible at it. And so I didn't start improvising until I was in the group. I was going to add, you mentioned Matra. I co-founded that group. I did not find, you know, I did not make that myself, but um, I started improvising in that and that, that really opened up my voice and I was just kind of like yeah why don't you know why isn't this more a part of music education it's just it's so much fun and when you're trying to get musicians to work hard at something like we're missing this opportunity to have fun and and be ourselves well and uh, even kind of having your own relationship with the music with the instrument and I mean it's it's uh, when I was a kid I didn't I didn't improvise, um, but I took a class. Every, anybody that goes to Boston Conservatory knows about Pierre Friorel's um, composition or, or sorry, improvisation class. It's not jazz improv. It's just improv. Like it's just completely open. And and that class like changed everything for me. It was the first like you. We start in large groups, and it's quite easy to improvise in a large group because it's a like a really crowded conversation. And then by the last class, you're doing. Um, you know, an improvised solo that could be five minutes or 10 minutes. And that is something that I think for most classical musicians is like, that's foreign. That's not something we've done yeah. before. And what a different relationship. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I mean, people, I um, spent some time with a friend who had just finished his DMA and I was like, hey, you know, and, and, and I pretty much improvise all the time. I should probably like learn a piece of music now because I, <laughs> I haven't like buckled down on a, on a hard repertoire for a while. But I was like, hey, I have this tune. Let's, let's just play. And he was so uncomfortable and like just almost like kind of mad at me for making him do this. And I... I, it was just amazing to me that, um, you know, he has so much more schooling than I do, but improvising just completely shut him down. Um, and it's just, it's so important to me. And I, and I want, 
and it's it's been so life-giving to me everything on my album is i mean it's everything is tunes everything on the album is a melody and chords i mean i sort of play the same way but i'll never play anything on that the same way twice um everything i write is improvised around ideas and that's how that's how i learn from eric sumu and um, I just think it's so life-giving that it's just shocking to me that we don't do it more often in our, in our, in our schooling. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Um, you know, you mentioned Eric Samut just briefly, Kaseni asked for it earlier. We want to hear what was your experience like working with him? Oh, it was, uh, it was an unforgettable experience. It was three years ago right now. Um, I, I won a grant, uh, there's a lot of great grant programming in Minneapolis and Minnesota. And I won one through the Metropolitan Regional Arts Foundation. Um, and I wrote it to go, I, I just, well, that that was another Fernando Mesa moment where I, I had just finished playing Eric Smoot's um, Shugaria and had lunch with Fernando. And I was like, I don't know what to do with myself next. Like I want to, I want to study with somebody, but I don't really know who to study with. I want to improvise. I want to compose. Um, who's the person who was like, Eric Simo was like the only person that you should, you have to study with him. So I wrote this grant, applied for several and finally won one. And I spent a month there taking twice a week lessons and just composing and eating bread and drinking wine, honestly. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was just, just like, just a gem like life experience to be alone with a marimba in Paris composing and practicing. But yeah, he is just he he is this phenomenal composer and everything he writes is like, oh yeah, I guess I happened to write that down that day. And like the rotations are transcriptions of him improvising. Like he didn't write those down. He recorded them and then basically transcribed himself. And he'll play them in all these different ways. And he he just makes you mad. He's so talented. Um he he's got this brain I, I told us like he can put a capo on his brain he'll play something and then he'll just completely oh you want an a flat okay and he'll play like some Bach fugue and like he could put it like in any key if you asked him to do it and, and he's like oh it's easy you just do it and I'm like no it's it's like oh it's not not for the rest of us um but it, it, the the thing that I the thing that was most valuable talking with him was voicing and comping on the marimba because I've never had a conversation about that with anybody. Um, I've taken lessons with vibus and pianists and I've played with guitarists trying to figure out what works on the marimba. Um, so we're very different from all those instruments. Probably the closest thing we are is piano, you know, with that amount of range, but we only have four, you know. So talking about voicing and comping, um, was the biggest conversation that we had there and probably affected the way I played the most. You know, to, to hear you speak about your time with him, like it seems like there's so many skills that I think jazz musicians or popular musicians or people interested in popular music and commercial music, that side of things get and then complete like it almost seems like most places of study, it's a completely separate set of skills that we get as classical, you know, in the conservatory type of training that model. Yeah, and I, I don't have the the widest network of percussionists that I know, and I'm sure they're out there, but I, I've never met somebody that has 
one foot truly in jazz and the other foot truly in classical music that can improvise over just it. I've never met, I've never seen anybody play like he can play. And he's so humble and kind and generous at the same time. Um, so there, I, I, the, the piece that you played, Casey, that Marimbista, I think probably sounds the most, there's a lot of Eric Sumu moments on there. Actually, oh, it would have been so great to share this one clip with you guys, because there are very few people that would get, there's a chameleon quote on my album. And so when it's out, you'll have to all go see if you can find it. <laughs> I was going to say one of my favorite PASIC concerts of all time was Eric Sumu played and he uh, one of the things he did was improvised over the second Mexican dance by Gordon Stout. He was kind of like, I'm, I'm so sorry, Gordon, but I'm going to do this. And it was just amazing. No, I know. He he played at Marimba 2010 that Fernando hosted. And, oh man, what did he play? It was, I think he, I don't know if it was variations on Porgy and Bess, but it was yep. completely improvised. Mm -hmm. And it's just in front of like, the marimbus of the world. <laughs> um, yeah, he's something else. Well, Jenny, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your your project. And geez, congrats on the album. You said it's going to be out July 5th? July 16th. 16th. Cool. So, yep, we can all look for that. And yeah, for talking about your art. And um, yeah, just great to, great to see you again. And um, yeah, thanks very much. I was going to add, um, by the time this airs at the end of June, there will definitely be at least one single out. I recorded Chick Corea's Armando's Rumba with this blazing uh, pianist and drummer that will that will be fun for Marimbus to enjoy. Cool. Nice. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Hey, well, thanks, everyone. Carly Bank, Senya, we'll catch you later on Big 2 something 290, I think. So, yeah, we'll see you all later. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys.